have no dogmas. Be critical about your own stereotypes, your own prejudice, ask questions, don't take things for granted, and just be really flexible. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Hey, James. Hi, how are you? You're in New York, right? Yeah, hi, Virginia. I am in New York. It's pretty chilly here, but uh, it's sunny, so I'm pretty pretty happy. Super. Here is um, cold, rainy, but we're bringing a bit of sunshine because of the conversation today that we're going to have about your role as a journalist at the Financial Times. And of course, what does it mean to be a journalist today into, of course, your field uh, that is quite specific into, of course, what is the world of due diligence. And we're going to explain a bit what you have built here at the Financial Times in the past uh, in the past years. But also a bit at large, we are going to give a few suggestions to our listeners that might be interested in the world of journalism and entering in this editorial career. So thank you so much, James, for joining us and uh, thank you uh, if uh, you can be you know uh, sharing a bit about your insights and your journey I would really love to um, uh, talk about your journey until uh, today so when did you decide to become a journalist how has been your journey until uh, today how long have you been at FT walk us through your career path please well, first of all, thanks again for having me, Virginia. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and well, my journey as a journalist starts pretty much around the age of 18. So um, I kind of, there were two things I wanted to do in my life. One was to be a professional football or soccer player, depending on where you're based in the world. Um, w w once that failed, I was doing pretty well. And then it kind of... Um, Things went, uh, went, went downhill um, when I was around 17, 18. And the, my other great passion was, was writing and kind of politics and kind of I was curious about the world. And I thought being a journalist was the best way to kind of feed that desire of discovering new things. And, and in many ways, it kind of happened by, by mistake. I remember I, I used to travel with a very dear friend on, when, in the summers. Uh, I still do so. And we'd go to kind of new countries that we hadn't been to. And we found out that like journalists seem to have access to a lot of things. And so we found that it would be fun to play the game of being a journalist. So I'm not sure this is, I mean, probably this is a statute of limitation, but I was like 17, I was in Thailand and I got a fake press card. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I would go around saying, I'm a journalist and like, I'd like to ask you some questions. And then I basically turned the story. I was, uh, well, what I found out about a trip, I was in, in Burma and I turned it into a story for uh, an Italian magazine. I'm originally from Italy, as some might hear from my accent. And it was about a group of monks uh, in, um, in the northern part of, of Burma who were kind of planning a kind of a revolution against the, the junta. At the time, journalists were not really allowed into Burma or Myanmar as it's named now. 
Um, and, and so I had an exclusive. And so this Italian magazine called Avvenimenti, which was like kind of a center left magazine, took my story. And, and basically from there, I, I kind of kept on feeding that, that passion. When I was at university, I wrote for another Italian newspaper called Il Manifesto. Uh, it would be surprising that's a communist Italian paper. Um, okay. it, it probably now feeds you're FT. Okay. Well, it, it feeds into conspiracy theory that every reporter at the FT is secretly a, a communist insurgent. A communist, okay. Um, but, right. yeah, I, but anyway, I found out when I was at university, as, and this is true, a lot of people who were interested, that are interested in the world, are interested in kind of a, a kind of diverse palette of information. That's how I found out about the FT. Um, as, as a young leftist, uh, it was kind of, it was maybe the paper of the enemy, but it was the best paper. It was the one that kind of gave you the news straight. It was uh, less, it was less about being on one side or the other. And so I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought, one, I can't work for the Italian papers because they don't pay very well. And two, um, I just want to be a foreign correspondent. And I thought the FT was one of those papers that actually had an incredible network of, of kind of, um, of correspondence. And so what I did is I, I just kept on harassing people at the FT in a, in a, in a nice way, uh, asking them if I could, I could work there. And eventually I ended up talking to a guy called James Lamont, who, uh, is now a director at the FT was our managing editor until uh, recently and and he invited me to spend two weeks in in London I was at the time in London um, and it was December 2005 and I pretty much never left then the old building which was OSB but I never left the FT I was 20 about 22 years old and uh, I've been at the FT since the story that changed my my career really was a story about a, a young guy. Again, this is a classic example of a story that DFT probably wouldn't have found interesting. And it was this guy called Alex Stew. He was a 20 something uh, man who's like a young man who was trying to raise awareness around the fact that like it was really expensive to go to university if you weren't from a wealthy family, despite the fact that the time university costs were much lower than they are now. And so he set up a, pay, a website called the Million Dollar Homepage. And he was selling a pixel. Each pixel was sold for a dollar. And the idea that then it kind of, through a marketing campaign that he launched, kind of, it, it was something that went viral. And, and a lot of brands started buying pixels on his website. And I remember the FT was not interested in the story. It thought it was stupid. And to some extent, it was a bit of a gimmick. But the fun thing was, so there was like, he was selling the last, I think, thousand pixels on eBay. And... He sold them for, I think it was like $200,000. It was way more than $1 per pixel. I wrote a small story and it went only online because it wasn't deemed to be worthy of the newspaper at the time. So that was the kind of the arbitrage I, I kind of inserted myself in. And that story was, I think, one of the most read stories of, of the year. This was by then it was 2006. And anyway, so I then pitched the story to the magazine saying, could I do a first person with this guy? They thought, yeah, sounds interesting. On the day that I had to meet Alex too for this interview, he had to cancel and he told me, oh, I'm really sorry. I've got trouble with the FBI and stuff. So something big happened. And I said, I asked him, what's going on? Oh, really? I can't really tell you. And I said, come on, tell me. It's all off the record. Um, 
and and then he told me that like effectively and i can say this because this has now been fully disclosed um he told me that his website had been kidnapped by a russian hacker and it had been under a kind of ddos attack which was something that was happening to a lot of corporations in the uk and we had the exclusive in the moment that a lot of attention was on his website and so we splashed the story with this like the million dollar homepage has been kidnapped by russian hackers and we beat everybody. It was my my first front page scoop at the FT. And after that, they told me, well, we don't know exactly what you should be doing here, but like you should stick around. And but I should mention that at the time was I was still a student. Um, and so I was going to university and like uh, doing the night shift at the FT. I think that's so interesting because what uh, I have a question for you before before I I I make my point. Um, do you work with any late millenn millennial Gen Z at the moment in your team, under thirties basically, like yeah. our listeners? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You do okay. So my question to you is: there is a bit of this generational um, stereotype at the moment that the younger generation. Uh, because of, uh, you know, um, all the opportunities that now, thanks to scholarships and uh, things that let you be into the big brands at universities, let's say, um, for some that are also unprivileged. So I think there is more accessibility to that elitist uh, Ivy League uh, uh, world. Um, they don't want to pay their dues. They don't want to do the time. Um and I think from your story, we can definitely tell that you did, right? So to make your own way, you you find uh, uh, you did extra shifts and uh, you needed, you know, to find the stories. That proactiveness was there. Do you actually see these still in younger journalists? So uh, you believe that it's a bit uh, a preconcept stereotype around the younger generations? Or do you actually see a bit of a difference even in, on the editorial floor when it comes to younger employees? So I'll start by saying I'm I'm a skeptic of having strong stereotypes of any generation, and I'm an even bigger skeptic of creating fake intergenerational kind of fights. Um, yeah, and because so the, and and then I, as the listeners here might not know, I teach at a university in in New York. It's a it's a public university uh, where a lot of my students are come from not very particularly privileged backgrounds. And so, um, and I know a lot of younger colleagues of mine who maybe have gone to very good universities, so are considered elite, they work as hard as I did, if, if not more. So I, I mean, I, I don't think it's true that like people don't wanna pay their dues. Um, and I always try to tell people like, there's a lot of unglamorous aspects of journalism. So like I came into it because of the grand, like the glory and winning awards and breaking amazing stories. There's a lot of crap that you have to do. And it's like, and that's something that it's important to, to be aware of. Let's share. What, what is the crap you, that you need to do? Well, it's like endless boring meetings, like in like internal politics, uh, just like writing a story that you think is dumb, but your editor really needs it, understanding that, you know, you you probably like, you know, you're, you're helping the bigger system, um, having to follow on something that somebody else wrote, so it's not an original story, um, doing Sunday shifts when nothing is happening, taking calls late at night, getting up early and like trying to match again the stories. The, the glamorous part 
is I think it's only when you look back you can see the great moments. Well, that's, you know, maybe when uh, we are in the moment that's maybe even typical from human nature. We are so, you know, into making uh, things happen and uh, um, also focusing on uh, the duties. And then it's only when you look back, you see the accomplishments. And I think that's quite natural for everyone, you know, to feel that way. And I find it a bit interesting that working in journalism, if you are an editor or like if you work with words and opinions and uh, and so on, um, you, they say, uh, draft you are drafting history. So you have a, a kind of a social role, which I find it very precious for democracy. And uh, okay. I, I would love to, uh, to uh, better understand how <laughs> does a typical day look like work-wise, of course, for you when... Uh, there are no times, especially you're based in New York, but you're always traveling here around Europe. Uh, you know, uh, if you act to actually follow everything, especially, and then we're going to go into that, your field and what you have been uh, covering. Uh, how do you manage that? So there was a time when I started this beat, which is now kind of evolved in many phases, and we can get into that. But it, Arash Masoudi and I, who's the co-creator of, of Due Diligence with me, uh, we didn't sleep much. That's that's a fact. And I don't think that's a healthy example for anybody to follow. So that was not great. Um, we, we've actually now built a much bigger team, which allows us to operate 24-7 effectively. Um, and and so that, that, that kind of has allowed us to kind of, allows me to travel more. It has freed me up to do other things, to grow um, our newsletter, which is now much more than a newsletter. Uh, to do better journalism and kind of, yeah, sh share the burden effectively. And that, that's been fantastic. I have a question for you. How do you turn a financial statement that I think is one of the most boring thing that you can read into an article that is appealing and sexy? First of all, it helps knowing how to read uh, a balance sheet or a financial statement. So that, that's point number one. Um, and I think a great example was recently a colleague of ours, Robert Smith, who's probably one of the greatest journalists, uh, financial journalists for sure in the world. And about a week later, he was reading um, SoftBank's precisely balance sheet. And he found out that uh, Masayoshi San, who's like the, the kind of founder of SoftBank, he's a very interesting, some people would say controversial uh, entrepreneur who's invested in, in tons of like startups like Uber and, and so forth. Um, had been effectively borrowing money from SoftBank, a lot of money, to fund side projects. And so that's a way of like, that was, if you want, a scoop of interpretation. Nobody probably either reads balance sheets like, like Rob does or even bothers anymore, partly because everybody's in a rush and so you're looking just at the headlines. So actually reading the small print is often where little gems are, are, are buried. And so I think the, the, the art of really kind of taking your time, looking into these statements, and at times it's a matter of like, do it a week after the, the headlines have, have kind of settled. And, and so th th there's always a bit of information. It could be about layoffs. It could be about a an impairment, a write-off. So there's always something in there. Not always, but often there's something that you can like write off and um, and kind of build on. 
Yeah, and I think that's quite strategic as well as a, as a, an insight. I think the FT and generally our kind of journalism, your kind of journalism, is not about being the first one to publish, but it's to publish the most accurate or useful piece of information. And I think that's what We also like to be the first, ideally, but... Idea, <laughs> yes. It's definitely, you know, like being accurate and... Uh, um, and not just the first one. I think it's quite key for FT journalism. And um, I think it's so interesting what you said about balance of sheets. And I think it's uh, so important to, to be able even to read the past of a company through the numbers. James, what do you think are the top skills required for your role? Because I see in uh, having worked with you briefly, um, that you are a journalist, but you said that you're also entrepreneurial. You need to think commercially. You need to think strategically about the, the future of a product that you built. You have a team to manage. So what are the kind of top skills that you would recommend to someone that would like to shadow your journey into an organization like VFT that should uh, be nurturing at the moment in uh, their under 30s? So I, I don't think there is... A a set of definitive skills and i think there's various kinds of journalists like i kind of the ft has allowed me to be entrepreneurial and i've kind of um gone down that route but effectively i think rule number one have no dogmas in the sense of like be be critical about your own kind of stereotypes your own prejudice um ask questions don't take things for granted. Um, don't be shy about kind of, you know, asking what you might think is a dumb question because often it might be the smartest question that nobody else wants to ask. Um, and and just be really flexible. Again, just which means kind of be open to doing different things. Um, being a journalist, and a lot of people, including myself, I think when you start your career as a journalist, you think, oh, I don't want to be a financial journalist. That's That sounds incredibly boring. Uh, and the truth is, it can be incredibly boring, but there's no difference. Like being a financial journalist or being a sports journalist or being a uh, music journalist, at the end of the day, I think if you love the craft of, 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 of being a journalist, you should be able to cover anything. And it's a matter of having empathy, understanding kind of what are the issues, the kind of the, the kind of the, 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 the societal cleavages. I mean, a lot of people tend to be soloist. I I'm not. I, I I'm I thrive on working with the best. I always, in fact, try to pair myself with people who are much better than me because that's the best way to learn. And I did that when I was 22. I do that now that I'm 39. Uh, and I will continue, hopefully, when I'm 60 and, and, and later. I really like this Socratic approach. I think we, we can sum it up in that way, you know, know that you don't know nothing and then just, uh, you know, be open with the world. That's and I would really and I would add, like, I, I learn as much. So I learn from people who are older than me. I learn from my peers. I learn from people who are younger. So there's no there's no kind of bias on I, I, I don't think I have. And I'm and really. That aspect of I'm I'm always ready to be convinced I'm wrong about something. I, I have strong values. That doesn't mean I kind of flip flop. But if you have if you kind of convince me that my thesis was wrong, I will I will go down that. I will experiment. I will kind of test your 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 alternative view.
Mm. So what is the kind of the biggest lesson that you have l- learned uh, while traveling around the world? That's something you mentioned at the beginning, right, of, uh, of your journey, that uh, you were very curious and you really wanted to see things and uh, traveling around. What's the best lessons out of this uh, traveling and, of course, for journalism and reporting? But what, what has been uh, even maybe, you know, um, a positive lesson out of a failure in that context? I think the number one lesson is learn how to listen. As, as in, in our role, we should be doing, that's why I feel kind of always a bit uncomfortable doing uh, most of the talking. I'm, I'm used to like asking questions and like listening and letting conversation, especially if you're not on TV or radio where it needs to be a bit more scripted, spend time let 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 people talk don't there's no need to interject there's no need to impose your bias to correct people's like tell them that they're wrong or not so listen number one originality in a world where news has been commodified being original is or or at least having looking at the the same thing but in a different way is um brings value to to our readers. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of this, uh, James. I really, really appreciate that. If there is one special part about the talent show is that we allow, or we welcome actually, not allow, uh, our listeners and especially our FT Talent Challengers to ask directly questions to experts like yourself um, about your role and your expertise. So we have two challengers for you. One is Kashwin, that is connected now. Hello, my name is Kashwin Sahai. I was a participant of the FT Talent Challenge in 2021. I'm originally from New Delhi. I'm working as a product manager with an IT company called Brain Enterprises based in Hyderabad. My question to James Fontanella Khan is a slightly personal one. It is said, the pen is a very mighty tool, especially in this globalized world where authentic news has taken on so much importance. So I'd like to know what you enjoy the most about journalism and also what you dislike the most about journalism. What are truly the horrible downsides or hazards of the job? Thank you and looking forward to your response. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, let's start from the negatives. Um, I, I do feel at times in the era of the fact that we work, we, the news never stops and there's like a sense of like, there are no more deadlines you know when i started you you know you you worked to produce a newspaper i mean you we online was there but there was a sense of like we were still working for for a product that was mainly a paper product here you feel often that you're in a tumble dryer and at times like a lot of things are published and that you're constantly chasing what other people are saying so you're there's not enough time to focus on one story at a time so often i'll be juggling three, five things at the same time. And that's stressful. On the flip side, the beauty of juggling five or six stories at the same time is exhilarating. It's the sense of the one thing I still truly love about this job is I'm constantly, and it's it's a bit of a, it might sound banal, but I'm learning a ton of stuff. I get to meet people. I get to be nosy and ask them questions. I get to being places that I would have not had access to otherwise. Um, and to do so 
in a way that I feel comfortable, which is I'm I, to be slightly an outsider. I I kind of I don't mind being the outsider, and it, it allows me to kind of keep that kind of critical approach. We and and I often people see critical as negative. I see critical as like essential for for us to kind of improve as as humans and and so yeah i really still enjoy that and um and the other thing is also like working with a group of really smart people i think i've been really lucky and blessed over my career that at every junction and maybe this is a great thing just about the ft but i'm sure it's it's not or i hope it's not but yeah i've, I've kind of had the chance of working with some of the greatest minds and and again, learning a lot from my colleagues. So that's that's been an enriching kind of experience. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing this, James. Now, your question, Nitin. Hi, my name is Nitin Magima. I was a participant in the FT SDG Challenge in 2021. I'm from India, but I'm currently living in New York. I work at Columbia University as part of the financial instrument sector team. I focus there on how to mitigate climate risk in terms of disaster relief. My question to Mr. Khan is, to what extent is climate risk used as a lens for understanding corporate finance and deals? Thank you and looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's funny because I was talking with one of my colleagues on Moral Money uh, um, in, in November. And we were just talking about how actually there are a, a ton of climate related deals at the moment, especially in the energy sector, as you'd expect, in a sense, as, as we kind of are shifting, the kind of focus on energy transition becomes a priority, uh, as well as the kind of the, the kind of crisis that we're experiencing with the war in Ukraine. Um, as many of our listeners might be aware, Europe has been incredibly dependent on Russian um, kind of energy sources. And so the question of like diversifying that and actually so M&A and kind of joint ventures and whatnot have become much more important. So, um, and, and more broadly, I think it's like shareholders of large kind of public, publicly held companies want to know that, you know, that the, they're, the executives of the company they're invested in are thinking about energy transition and so it's it's way less of a kind of back thought it's, it's really much on the forefront james thank you so much for being with us thanks for sharing uh, of course your journey and your perspectives and being so transparent with uh, with us during the show and with our listeners i really hope you enjoyed it definitely did and uh, thanks to our listener for tuning in for another episode of italian show thank you thank you james thank you bye bye This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, Noor Hafez, and me, Virginia Stagni. Our podcast producer, editor, and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.